Paul's letter to the Galatian church. And not to spend too much time, but to recap just briefly, we said that the Galatian churches, it's really more than one, it's the churches in the region of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey and on the Mediterranean rim, uh, that Paul had been writing there to remind them of who they are, uh, to remind them of the beauty uh, of the gospel itself, and to encourage them and, and to exhort them, that's more than encouraging, but to really exhort them to stand firm, to not be shifted or swayed even subtly by those who were coming into the church preaching a different gospel. They were preaching a gospel that began with Jesus but ended with self. It was a gospel that says, yes, you need Jesus to sort of get this thing going, but then in order to be perfected or in order to really sustain all of that, then you have to do a lot of work yourself. And Paul came in and he said, no, it's Christ at the beginning Christ at the middle and Christ at the end. It is Christ and Christ alone who does all of this. He says, oh, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you in front of whose eyes Christ was portrayed as crucified? Are you now going to say that you begin by righteousness and his work by grace alone and you're going to end with works of the law? Oh, may it never be. And Paul had nothing good to say to those other pastors and preachers who were coming in and preaching something else. He said, those men should be anathema. Those men should be cast into the pit of hell. And on their way, they should go ahead and be emasculated and and just tossed in there. He said, nothing good. The, The language is incredibly vulgar and strong to try to show Paul's emphasis to say, folks, this is no small matter. This is no small thing. What you believe has eternal consequence. You realize that, don't you? What you believe has eternal consequence. And most of us don't like to think much. We, we don't like to consider things or ponder things for very long. We like noise. We, we enjoy distractions. We like sound bites. We, we are, we're quick on things instead of just considering for a moment. I wonder if you're honest how many of you, when we have a time of confession and we have silence, that makes you uncomfortable. That you're going, wow, this is really long. I mean, this is, folks, I mean, that was like 15 whole seconds of silence uh, that you had. But we, we don't know what to do with our thoughts. Paul's, part of Paul's emphasis in here is to say, folks, you were designed for freedom. The gospel is freeing you from all of this. Be careful to stand firm in the gospel and not be swayed anywhere else and to start to think through the implications of all this other stuff that's being presented to you. Consider it, consider it, consider it. And then he moves in and he says, now as you're considering it and walking by the power of the Spirit, he constantly goes back to the Spirit is the thing which moves in us. Remember we used Judas as an example and we said of Judas, we said Judas had, he was in the best small group ever, right? Who was Judas's small group leader? You can give that answer. That's the Sunday school answer, but this one, it works. It's Jesus. Jesus was his small group leader. Was Jesus a good teacher? Did Jesus have all the right answers? 
Oh, yeah. Did he give the best illustrations possible? Oh, yeah. And he gave the best um, life lessons and assignments to say, now you go and do these things. So not only did Judas have the best input, he had the most incredibly profound uh, teacher and small group leader. He also was a part of the most powerful ministry group ever. He went out and saw Satan falling from heaven. He saw people's lives change. He saw healings uh, happen. He went out and he had greater output than most of us would ever experience in our life. So what was the problem with Judas? The problem was that the Holy Spirit had never captured his heart. That the Spirit had never taken up residence in him. That he was out and he was listening and he was doing, but nothing had internally captivated and changed him. And that's where Paul says, so be very, very careful to make sure that the Spirit is at work in you, that it's taken up residence in you. And you know that it's taking up residence in you when you begin to see and feel and experience this battle, the battle of the Spirit taking up residence in you and the battle of the flesh, that residual self, that other desiring center that you have which desires to pull you away back under the law, back into a place that says, I can earn my salvation, I can do these things, my righteousness is based on who I am, my joy is set by the circumstances that I'm in. I'm gonna love people who are just easy to love. I'm gonna do these things. Paul's saying, no, the spirit comes in and it battles against the flesh. And you know that the spirit is at work when you begin to see the fruit of the spirit born out in your life. And that's where we are in this series. We're looking at Galatians chapter five at the fruit of the spirit, that we know one another by the work of the spirit in our lives. You know a person's a Christian if they have that work of the spirit in your life. Now, This is an interesting place down in Hilton Head. It's in the south, but I would venture to say it's not all that southern sometimes. You understand what I mean? It's the low country, and I'm from South Carolina. I can put on one of the little native stickers. I was born in Columbia. I'm here. I get it. I love it. But one of the things I love to do is I like to listen to y'all talk and try to figure out where you're from. Cal and I had lunch. He's from Wisconsin. I know that. I can pick it up in his tone. Some of you are from Ohio. Some of you are from Massachusetts. Some of you are from other places. I'm from, I grew up for a little while in a a part of Southeast Missouri. And you know that it's Southeast Missouri because we say Missouri and not Missouri. And someone from St. Louis would say, oh, you're one of the hicks from down towards the boot heel because you say Missouri and not Missouri. And I'd say, well, yes, thank you. I am. You can pick up because of even the voices. You understand where I'm going? You know something about the person by their accent, by their actions, those kind of things. Christians should be the same way. The world should be able to sniff you out that fast. That when you walk in and that you go and you experience something and you're going through trouble in your marriage or you're experiencing a joy or someone else is going through something and you come in and you engage the situation or they look and they watch you, they should be able to see right away by your love your joy, your peace, your patience, your kindness, your goodness, your gentleness, your faithfulness, and your self-control, that there is something distinctly different about you, and they're going to be drawn to it to go, tell me where you're from. Tell me where your citizenship is, because my citizenship is of this world, and I, I look like the culture of this world, but your citizenship, your, your driver's license, your member card must be from someplace else, because you don't act like the rest of us act. 
You're not responding like everybody else is responding. You're not becoming unraveled by everything that we're becoming unraveled by. You're not all that upset about who wins the election in November. You'd like to have your guy win, but at the end of the day, you're just not all that whacked out about it because you know that God says in his word, I move the emperors and rulers in the palm of my hand like a stream of water and that I'm on my throne. And so we get passionate about things. We don't have to get all unraveled by them. And so you see what we're talking about here are characteristics of the Spirit in our life that are distinguishable to other people. Now, I gave you a homework assignment a couple of weeks ago. Do you all remember what it was? I said that one of the ways that you know the fruit is growing is that it will be visible in your life. And I asked you to find somebody in your life who is safe and who loves you and has your best interest in mind and ask them, how am I doing? Do you see the fruit growing in my life and what fruits need to grow in my life? Did any of y'all do that? I heard from a couple of people who said, Bill, you gave us homework assignments and we just aren't gonna do that. Because that's basically, preacher, you went from preaching to meddling and you're now starting to mess around with stuff and I don't really like you messing around with stuff. I got home that day, and in my family, we did it a little differently. I hadn't really planned this, uh, but one of my family members said, hey, why don't we tell dad what's going on in his world? Let's assess dad. It's like, that wasn't really the assignment, folks. <laughs> but it was, it was a safe place, sort of. <laughs> but, but you know what? If your family or your wife or your child or your parent doesn't see these fruit, you really need to question the existence of the Spirit underneath it. Lisa's my spouse. She should see these in me. And if she doesn't, that probably means they're not very mature or they're not existent. Now that's challenging, isn't it? So I'm going to reassign you the assignment, okay? Would you, for your own sake, would you be willing to risk something? Because really the only thing you're risking is your pride. The only thing that's going to be hurt in the middle of this is your ego. Because that person who loves you very much would say, I see Christ working in you. I see it. But that patience thing, probably need to work on that one a little bit more. That whole joy thing, you kind of got the stoic thing working. We need to see a little more joy going on there. Smiling is a good thing in your life. So it's important to see that and to wrestle it. Now, the one we're talking about this week is patience. Excuse me, patience. Wow. Peace. Had a P. Um, That really instills confidence, doesn't it? The pastor doesn't even know what he's preaching on this week. Just be patient with me. We'll get there uh, on it. But it's peace. We talked last week about joy. And we said joy is a deep-rooted, it's emotional and it is uncontrollable. It is created by the Spirit in you, which says that you rejoice in the midst of every circumstance, that it is not tied to your circumstances, but joy comes from the acknowledgement and the full assurance and knowledge of who you are in Christ. That no matter what else happens in your life, everything could be stripped away from you. But if God is your goal, if he is your source, ultimate source for everything, 
you can be joyful in the midst of it all. Now that's unique, isn't it? Because in our culture, what's joy tied to? What's happiness tied to? Stuff. Things. Status. How good you look. All of those things. Peace now comes on the end of that. And I think that joy fully expressed leads us to an absolute state of peace. Now, the scripture where we're going to, and we're only going to really touch on this, these are almost like primers on the fruit of the Spirit, because we could, we could spend weeks on each one. And we're going to go look at John 14, uh, and it's where Christ had been speaking to, to the disciples. It's called the upper room discourse. It's where he's in the upper room on the night in which he was betrayed, right before he was going to be killed and suffer and, and be betrayed and all of those things. And he's talking to his disciples, and his disciples are troubled. You can imagine, this is someone that they love. Bring in the human element here. These are men who had been around Christ for three years every single day. They had seen some incredible things happen. They had witnessed all of this. Do you think there was a deep relationship going on between these men and Christ? I mean, you're with someone just a few weeks or even at a summer camp and you go, wow, we're just together. We're just, you know, best friends forever and all this stuff. They were together in this way and now Jesus unloads on them at this meal and he basically says, it's the last meal we're having together. I'm gonna get betrayed tonight by one of you and I'm going to be turned over to the authorities and I'm going to be killed and I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to die imagine what those 12 were experiencing at that table do you think it was peaceful or was it just in upheaval oh no what are we going to do now Jesus you can't leave us Because if you leave us, everything falls apart. You are the linchpin that holds all of this together. How are we going to withstand? How are we going to do this? We can't do it. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I'll ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be with you. Friends, I will not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you'll see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you are in me and I in you. And whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and, will, and he, we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Shalom, I leave you. My shalom, I give you. 
Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you will believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. And so we've said that this fruit, this peace that Christ gives comes from him. It is uniquely his peace. He says, it's mine and I'm giving it to you. And that peace which he gives is a peace that is going uh, to, to settle in and, and set up dominion in our life. That we will live a life of peace. And so as we talk about peace in the world, let me, let me go back just for a moment about thinking about things. Have you ever asked a person who holds to a secular worldview or a pagan worldview to fully consider where it leads them? To think for a moment about it. I got a Facebook post not too long ago and I could never repeat it with the words that were used in it, but at the end of it, it basically said this. You believe in your religion so you don't have to deal with the ultimate reality that you're a bunch of atoms forced together and you're a piece of meat sitting on a piece of rock spinning out of control in a universe that will one day end and you with it. There is no other logical conclusion to a belief system that says you were, you were made by accident, that there is no ultimate purpose in your life, that you are just a random series of mistakes that came together and formed you, and your life ultimately has no purpose. You can be the greatest humanitarian, but you won't be remembered. Your gravestone may be around, but no one's going to remember you, and ultimately, it's just going to end. Ask somebody when they're facing death to draw peace and comfort and satisfaction from that worldview. Some of you are in the midst of that worldview right now and your hearts are troubled within you because you are wrestling with the logical conclusions of that line of thinking. And where does it lead you? You're a piece of meat on a rock spinning out of control that one day is just going to end. Sleep tight. Hope that cancer is not as bad as it seems. So your kid is doing that? Oh well. Christ is saying here, consider for a moment. He's saying, I'm giving you a peace that the world cannot offer to you. I'm offering you something that is supernatural, that comes only by the work of God implanting it into your heart, and the only place to find it is there. Now, you can go and mimic it other places. The world tries to mimic it, and here's how the world tries to mimic it. Wow, that's some tough stuff going on in your life. Well, you know, it is what it is. 
What does that mean? You know, it is what it is. Oh, I just don't want to think about that. Just, just push that thought out of your mind. Oh, you're such a Debbie Downer. Quit thinking about that stuff just to be happy. Do you see what it's really encouraging you to do is stop thinking. The only way the world can get you to find peace, the only offer that religion and other philosophies have is to get you to shut your mind off. And to get you to say, just stop thinking about it. It is what it is. Well, maybe it's more than what it is. Maybe there's something more to it than just that. But where do you go with it? Where do you go with it? There's no answers, so it just is what it is. Christ is saying, fellas, you 12, think for a second. I'm leaving you but I'm leaving something for you that you couldn't have if I stayed. And so I've got to go to be with my Father in heaven. I've got to go, and I've got to go, and I've got to encounter hell itself. You said in the Apostles' Creed that Christ descended into hell. It's not necessarily that he went and spent some time in hell itself, but that he experienced hell on your behalf, that hell is God's turning away from. One person put it this way, hell is the greatest monument to man's independence that God ever could have created. That man said, I want a place where I don't have to deal with you. He said, fine, there it is, it's hell. You won't have to deal with me, I will turn my face away from you. Now you could live in a cave a mile down under the ground and not believe in the existence of the sun, but the reality is if the sun stopped, you would die that fast. Because there is a benefit to the sun's presence, even though you deny its reality and never see its light. And God is saying the same of hell. There is a benefit in your life for my presence, and you will lose that benefit in hell. And he is saying to us, I've got to go and experience that. Christ was saying, I've got to experience that so that you never will. And then I'm going to go be with my father. And my father and I are going to send you something. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to leave something with you. And it's going to be the third person of the Trinity. It's going to be the Holy Spirit himself actually there with you. And he's in your presence. And he is a down payment. He is a guarantor of the promises that I'm making. And the promise that I'm making is that, folks, I know the end of the story. Many of y'all want to stay far away from the book of Revelation. Because it gets confusing and it's prophecy and it's all of these stuff. Let me go ahead and let you in on a secret about Revelation. Here is the key to Revelation. You ready? We win. That's the key to it. Christ wins. Actually, I've misphrased that. Christ has won already. And it says that Satan and evil is on its way out, but it's kicking and screaming on the way out. But one day when he returns again, everything's going to be made right. And in the meantime, we can believe that and say, I don't know why I'm experienced. I just found out that a very dear friend of mine, she's eaten up with cancer and I just wept. I hate the fall. I hate the existence of sin in this world and what it does to me and my family and to my friends and to you. But there is a calm that comes in the middle of that to know this, Christ has won. And though she may die from this cancer, she won't die because her hope is in Christ and that he will see her through. And therefore, in the middle of it, I can find not only joy, but I can find peace. 
that I can be at peace and I can flourish. That word peace is the word shalom. Now, Lisa would say that I've gone way off of outline here, and I have. I'm moving through, so if you want my notes, I'll give them to you later, but you'll go, that's not what you preached, and it's not. But this idea of shalom that he gives to us is a word that means more than just peace. What does peace mean to you? Most of you, it just means the absence of conflict. Peace just means the absence of strife. The word in the Hebrew and the word that, that, that think about it, when Christ came back uh, from, he raised from the dead, he encountered his disciples. He said to them on three, maybe four occasions, one word. He saw him and he said, shalom. 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 So that word has to be this huge pregnant word with all of this meaning. It has, it's got to be something more because that was the best word he had when he saw his disciples. And I would imagine that Jesus had a pretty good grasp on vocabulary and he could have picked a word or created a word that said what he wanted to and he said, shalom. What he meant was shalom is a universal flourishing in the presence of God himself. If the fall and sin entered the world, and if the world had been made together, God talks about it being like a mosaic, that it was a fabric interwoven together. And in sin entered the world, that fabric was starting to be ripped away, that it was no longer fully integrated, that our souls were no longer fully integrated, that our relationships one to another were no longer fully integrated. They were in a state of disintegration, that vertically our relationship with God was in a disintegrating way, that peace then is bringing all of that back. That the peace of God is an interweaving of everything back together. Do you realize that when Christ comes into your life, guess what he's doing in the midst of your own soul? He's weaving it back to how it was supposed to be. You're finding yourself again. You're actually learning to be the true you. You're learning that the characteristics of who you're to be are love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and all of those things. And guess what it does in your interpersonal relationships when the Spirit of God rests and you have the work of Christ in your heart? Guess what happens? The shalom of Christ in your marriage starts to weave your marriage together. And in your relationships with one another... And we believe that socially it does that, that you can go in and where the presence of the kingdom is, guess what? Societies are brought back together. We believe that the power of the Spirit and the gospel going out actually brings a flourishing, a universal flourishing wherever it goes. It transforms that place. It brings a peace to it, not an absence of war, because I imagine if you were to go over to China right now or you were to go over to some of our brothers and sisters in other areas of the world who are under great oppression and they don't, have, they, they don't know what it's like to not have uh, war or things or persecution or martyrdom, and you say, are you at peace? What you would find where they're saying, absolutely. I know the end of the story, Bill. Christ is one. Why wouldn't I be at peace? All this stuff... I count as loss for the surpassing glory and the greatness of what I've gained in Christ Jesus. I could lose all things, but knowing that I've gained him, how could I not be at peace? 
How could I not be experiencing a profound level of joy in my life when I know that I was one of those people and God sent down his son for me and he redeemed me and he's now working inside of me and that wherever I go, no matter what storms are are buffeting me, I can be at peace right in the middle of it. I'll end with this today. If you're not experiencing that peace, ask questions. Ask better questions of your heart. If you're in relationship with someone and you can tell that they're constantly in a state not of peace or flourishing, but they're just, they're, why does God constantly say, don't be anxious. Quit worrying so much. You do realize that this gets you nowhere. Pacing back and forth may help your heart rate, but it's not going to fix the world's problems. Peace leads you to a posture on your knees in front of God, saying in the midst of these storms, show up. In the midst of this, show up. Make your presence known to me in a way that then I can go out And blessed be the peacemakers that I can go out and that because of the peace that bubbles out of me, I can be a blessing to those who are around me. So if you're not experiencing peace in your life, ask good questions. Because there's really two kinds of peace. There's peace with God. Ask yourself, are you at peace with God? The peace that Christ gained for you at the cross And then the peace of God that passes all understanding. Basically, it says the world doesn't get it and it ain't going to find it, but you can and you have. Go and experience it. So, we have a, a peace that passes understanding, that flourishes within us, that is not set by our circumstances, and that is contagious and is based upon one thing and one thing only, Christ's completed work. Folks, there's nothing more important than for you to wrestle with this question. Is Christ's completed work the basis of everything in your life? If it's not, please don't leave here today without letting it be. Because I can guarantee you one thing, we don't know what's gonna happen in the next moment. Are you at peace with God? And do you have his peace? Let's pray. Father, we could just feel the tension in the room there on that night when your son was talking to his disciples. Lord, how they must have been so upset. But yet he was reminding them over and over and over again, not only are you not alone, but remember the words that I've given you. Would we remember those words as well? That you have overcome the world, that you have gone to be with the Father, but one day you're gonna come back and you've left your spirit with us now as a down payment and a guarantee of all of the promises that are yes and amen in Christ Jesus for us. Father, there are some here today who need to believe this message for the first time. And I pray that you would soften their hearts and move in their hearts today, that for the very first time they would no longer be enemies of the king, but they would be sons and daughters. 
that they would be at peace with you. And that in coming to a peace with you through Christ, they would experience your full peace in their lives, knowing that you have taken care of everything. And though we don't fully understand it all, we can be at peace in the middle of it. And so we don't have to be envious of Christ who rested in the boat in the storm, but we can rest in the middle of the storms as well, knowing that our God cares for us. Father, we praise you and we thank you. To Christ be the glory in all things. Amen.